All right. Hello, and welcome to Theory Talk. My name is Joseph Weissman, here once again in conversation with Taylor Adkins. The conversation today was prompted by uh, the reading of the first few paragraphs of Mackenzie Wark's The Beach Beneath the Street, The Everyday Life and Glorious Times of the Situationist International. Uh, I'm just going to read just a little bit of the second paragraph of the introduction, Leaving the 21st Century. Wark writes, We are bored with this planet. It has seen better centuries, and the promise of better times to come eludes us. The possibilities of this world, in these times, seem dismal and dull. All it offers at best is spectacles of disintegration. Capitalism or barbarism, those are the choices. This is an epic governed by this blackmail. Either more and more of the same, or the end times, or so they say. We don't buy it. It's time to start scheming on how to leave the 21st century, the pessimists are right, things can't go on as they are. The optimists are also right, another world is possible. The means are at our disposal. Our species being is as a builder of worlds. I like that. It's just um, what he what, they, what was sarcastically being decried in, in the academy, I, I feel like that's the kind of complacence that I don't identify with and that for you and me I don't think theory is just a, a kind of a cultural capital or, or accoutrement that a is spectacle of disintegration attendingly capital yeah I, I don't feel like it's just something that we do in, in a way that makes us a part of a, a group I mean like I think this is why Deleuze is taken from behind might be the exception to that long list because he's not necessarily been appropriated by the academy in the same ways and is always been out there, even Guattari even more so. But in art, art, I mean, this connection between art and theory, the work is kind of complaining about this, like, terminal nexus of creation. I think that what... what An alternate universe imagining. Our, our species yeah. essence is world building, and we, we, get, we get locked in the same kind of circuits. I don't know. I think that species being would be uh, different than species essence. Sorry. No, no, but it, it would... It, the thing... I say that as a joke. No, no, pick a better word if it's close. No, no, no. I say that as a joke because in the Hegelian dialectic, being and essence are distinct. Being is, is is what we start with, right? Essence comes along in that thread of essence and existence that Sartre made so. Um, being is fact, but I would essence just, is data to be discovered. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, that's 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 the thing. Being would be the givens. Uh, well, you said being is fact. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm no, being is being is given. Being is like, as like, as like this, um, that which has to be refined. And that's why we start with with being. Um, essence has to be produced, made, manufactured. Yeah, essence from the from the dialectic of being and nothingness. But isn't that. this part of the dialectic of modernity that like essences could be manufactured, right? This yes. is you know the yes. star, the stars down to earth. Yes. The ideas the output of a factory. Yes. And that's know? that's the that's the threat that capitalism brings and that's why I think Sard is so smart to uh, in his own way of being able to being in the academy but really talking to a popular audience um, is making that distinction between Man is not does not have the uh, the essence of a tool. Man does not have what um, Aristotle it doesn't have Aristotelian teleology in the sense of the what there's the four essence there's like or the four causes there's like the final cause the efficient cause the um, I'm blanking on the words but 
you know, tool. It's like what it is and how it works and what it's for, you know. It's yeah, like this. yeah, we don't have the same kind of... And a tool is made for, for doing something. Humans don't have that kind of essence. This is why existence precedes essence rather than the other way around. Um, it's the difference between models and schema in a certain way. Uh, or the model and the copy, right? We're simulacra. Um, and in that sense, I guess that's why I would say the that whole species being and species essence thing is interesting because when Marx says species being in the 18, what, the 1860 manuscripts on, um, it, it's no, that, 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 that work is really known as this anthropological early Marx. And he doesn't really come back to using that term species being, but it's a, it's a very Hegelian term and, uh, is, also highly interesting because of um, the, but, but the like, same work that's being done in Britain by Darwin. Sure, but look, look we're, we're, like, work was pointing to our species being as a creative world and universe generating, and even in Marx, it's like the idea that work rather than like wage labor or something, yeah. like work as in creative labor. Yeah. Well, creative, it's labor, but like oh, you meant the, there's a in, in Marx, it's about the creative transformation of the world, yeah, and, and of hum, allowing humans to fully unpack their yeah. potentialities. That's the difference in French between the word for oeuvre, which we get for like a masterpiece, a master oeuvre. Uh, that's what is wrought. That's what is created. It's the, I think of it as like a, a body of work that would in, include like a lot of things. Right? In fact, oeuvre is pretty much the same word as work. It's just, you see the... Yeah. But it's... it's um, in German, wirken is what is wrought, what is um, effectuated, one could say. But the, the word for labor in the Marxian sense is travail, which we get from tra travail. Uh, in Spanish, it's trabajo, it's a job. But that's the kind of labor that would be uh, alienated, whereas oeuvre would, would imply a kind of different dialectic of alienation. And that would be artistic in a certain sense. Right. There's a different dialectic of creator and created uh, in terms of alienation in the work rather than in labor. And, uh, so, so something you got me thinking that, that I was going to try to connect back to, to aesthetics and art, you, you made me think about uh, like humanity species being as, I don't know, as like using all of the other fluxes of the cosmos and connecting them in these different ways that like a part of our species being is finding a way to commune with these other essences yeah. and bring them alive yeah. and connect them to each other. We are the, in that sense, uh, the, the essence of man is, is um, transpositional, transductive, is, it, it's not, it's not tied down to um, any other essence. And in fact, you know, as you're saying, is, is sort of remaking, utilizing the essences in the universe, cosmos, and fundamentally as tools and as, as weapons, one could say. Right, and it's, it's, it's about the materiality of the fluxes, right? Like, putting them into combination and, like, an active, inner, you know, the, the creating this interzone between yes. between the different things. I don't, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, there's this, like, this, this question of the constructedness of the world that mm -hmm. I think is, like, at the heart of the situationist problem. Yeah. Right? It's I mean, that dialectic between the, what the phenomenon and the mechanosphere. There is a kind of, that's what's at stake. Um, and in a way, there's... Why, why phenomenon, mechan mechanosphere? Well, the mechanosphere would be this 
this this regime of the rhizomatic networking of machines in there, uh, and and we as the custodian of the universe, our ways of integrating them, uh, the synchronization of the rhythm of machines and their translations and transductions um, is a inevitable part of not only the ongoing continuance of the dialectic of capitalism, but at its as basis, right? There's something to why didn't like what is it? They asked the question, which Deleuze and Guattari may be repeating from someone else. Why is it that given all of the uh, prerequisites on the ground, why didn't capitalism form in China. in China in the fourth, third centuries with the rise of the bureaucratic assemblage. The principle and, it could have. Right? Yeah. I think it's their point, that, that it was in fact a bunch of contingent things yeah. that, that happened to occur. But know? then they, they turn to this interesting Marxian concept, which I won't relay here for undermining its specificity, but Marx has, a whole, has whole sections on Asiatic labor. Um, there's a way in which, from what I know, and the way Deleuze and Quattari talk about it, there's a way in which the surplus value of Asiatic labor is, is not turned into a, uh, a kind of a spreadsheet for, you know, the, the whole stereotype of, you know, if companies aren't growing, then they're, then they're in some ways shrinking and that, that disrupts the way that capital works in this, in this miraculating surplus value that, that in a certain sense, the Asiatic production, because of the, perhaps I think what gets, uh, left out would be the despotic mechanism through which the flows would pass. Um, therefore, Asiatic production is always already subject to an overcoding that determines the allotments of the flows. What capitalism needs is decoding. Um, what capitalism needs is a decoded structure that doesn't, no longer has the body without organs as the, the despot through which all the flows uh, miraculate, and that's also why you see the way that Marxism and even fascism, to a certain extent, but in a different way, the way that they, the different totalitarianisms, each dealt with the cap, the the question of capitalistic flows. I mean, that's why when we think of like the '50s and the whole uh, post World War II Red Scare. And, and, and the vehement opposition to all things communist, it's not so much democracy versus communism, except that's obviously a political parallel, but it's not, it's, it's actually undergirded by a deeper fundamental dis disparity, which is between the logic of capitalism and the, uh, in, its, in its decoding and, and regulation of flows, or un really unregulation of flows, Communism is, uh, deals with the flows differently. It deals with decoding differently. That's, that's true, but it, okay, so like one of the things it feels to me like you're pulling out is per, aspects of the development problem, right? Like the, well, yeah. and I mean, it's obviously something communist movements have faced and dealt with to varying degrees of, of failure and success, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, like the basic problem is like, so how do you go from feudalism to capital without yes. intervening in a, in a long protracted, you know, like stage of development from 
despot and peasants to bourgeoisie and pro- but isn't that isn't that it's, it's, yeah. how, it's how you make this move yeah, like yeah, yeah you've got the despot and the peasants and you've got mm. how do you get from there to i've got bourgeois and proletariat well, right? mercantilism like, sh- sh- sure but the point is you, you don't go overnight and if you've got a huge country of peasants mm. and you've just had a communist revolution what do you do? And I, I think that this has sort of been, this right. is the, the arc of the failure of communist movements of the last century writ large, at least at the nation state level. Although you can make arguments about China that maybe it wasn't so bad. And, but it, you know, obviously as they make concessions in the direction of the market, mm-hmm. um, things, things, we, we start looking at them differently. We start thinking about, right. you know, like the way they have to interact and, you know, and look, we're we're you know about to be a bipolar world with China, despite all the the excitement about Russia. So maybe we should, oh, yeah. we should be thinking oh, a little more carefully about sort of a- Asiatic modalities of life in general, right? Yeah, if you compare the economies on the world stage of China and Russia, there's no, oh, no there's it's no a, comparison. It's a joke. Yeah, I, I read that. I'll have to look at it, but Russia's GDP is dwarfed by ours as a nation. Uh, I think someone said they had the GDP of New York yeah, State. Yeah. No, that, that's, that sounds right. So, I mean, they're, but it's, po- it's crazy. Their population is tiny for their size, but they have a lot of... Yeah, they have... They have but, let's, but, but look, you, you were saying something about... Something that seemed distinct for, to me from these developmental yeah. concerns about, like, how do we move into... How do we get the flows of capital active and decoding things if the prerequisite format of our economy is not yet there? Yes. Right? So... Yeah. And, and again, it seems like even communist movements require this in order to effectuate economy. You actually have to detour through industrialism yeah. and post-industrialism, and I guess, right? Like, it is the question, because it's like, if it was inevitable that industrialism, if you buy every, you know, yes. all, all the profit marks wants to, to sell you, according to at least committed communists, you know what I mean? Like that, why is it even more inevitable now that we're past post-industry? You know, like there's, there's a kind of... Mm-hmm. This, the senility of socialism in some respects today, right? I, I think that I would I would suppose that capitalism, since it represents the that which is feared in primitive societies, it's the decoding of flows that's feared. Right. But the despot also fears the decoding of flows. Except we're we transition to what in a thousand plateaus they would call the counter signifying regime. It's the barbaric hordes that represent just as the blonde beast of prey, you know, erecting a state from peoples, as Nietzsche would say, just as they had to decode uh, the primitive codes in order to effectuate an, an, an overcoding, what the barbaric hordes represent is, a, is, is uh, the unovercoding of the despotic regime. That would be, so it's a different kind of decoding, but it's a repetition of the initial event, which is threat from, from outside. What capitalism lacked was the means of automation, of automating itself in its own um, in its own ways in which it transgresses and yet moves back its own boundaries. Right, the limits, the the all the different limits that they they set out in anti Oedipus. It, it, it's funny. This is it didn't have an automated way of doing that. Right, it didn't have its auto sophisticating mm-hmm. mechanism yeah. of intelligence explosion right that like that we see with information technologies in this this sort of second computer age where we're entering i guess i'm saying if if we didn't get full communism out of the first industrial wave why does it is it become more or less inevitable with the second wave and like and and look i mean I, i get it right the point is that that the left in general responds better to time pressure 
than like than the right. You know what I mean? Like this is, and this is maybe the weird thing about about the political alignment today is that almost everyone besides in the, the the quote unquote wacko environmentalists on the far left, right? Like is concerned with something else besides the environment, right? Like, but that's the test at least we have to pass as a you know to to survive as humans on this planet, and and it. It seems like there's a segment of people on the right that are sort of that want to follow the the machine acceleration logic to try to just route around the fact that we're going to make the Earth biologically uninhabitable. They just want to upload their brains into machines and, yeah. let the, and let the rest of us suffer it out. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> the only like responsible ethical position seems to be like let's take account of the time pressure induced on our species, right? By by climate change, um, and but no one else even has it on their priorities, right? It really is only the far left that's advocating that, like, no, we have to have this at the very the very top of the thing. Um, these are not, you know, I don't know. I guess despite uh, despite other other concerns, um, I mean, I, you know, obviously there's a lot of things worry about in the in the world I don't know but it's straight, the point is that they're connected like the problem of automation yeah. and the problem of you know thermoregulation of the planet right right like is connected up with industrialism and automobilism and like this uh, this automation of the movements of of a glorious global bodiless you know body without organs kind of m- machine of the future that's assembling itself you know, in real time from the historical past. Right. right? And then that brings, I guess, back to what I originally got us down this, this, this talk was about this, the modernization as a synchronization of machines, right? This is... It's like the, the Yukui. Yeah, that's, that's what was required, a kind of synchronization of machines um, in, for capitalism to become, to ramp up and to take on this, this, this life. Um, I mean, we see it, but it, but the thought originally spanned from the way that, uh, Marx would talk about Asiatic production as not being plugged into this feedback loop that capital as a miraculating body abstractly represents, right? Um, or that money would abstractly represent of, of surplus value. And, uh, the original thought I had was about the use of the, the way he used the word dealer. When I heard it, when you were reading that passage, first thing I thought was drug dealer, and I laughed because he's talking about art, and he's talking about right. art dealers. But it's just funny that immediately in my head that was just making that association and the disparities. Sure, we, we were reading from Mackenzie Works, The Beach Beneath the Street, a little bit before we started, started this up. And uh, it's that disparity association between an art dealer and a drug dealer you can almost see it as a comedy sketch um and it's but they're but but they're 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 both peddling they're both uh providing the service of enjoyment if you will different aspects of enjoyment sort of the aesthetic and the uh but i think for people like freud he would think of the aesthetic as 
itself being an intoxicant in the way in, he talks about it in civilization and its discontents, right? So the ways in which we ward off pain or unpleasure involves a number of things, one of which is, is, is the way we, we intoxicate ourselves. Intoxicate ourselves. Um, so art would be a kind of drug, right? It would be a kind of... Um, no, this is, I mean, this is at least Nietzsche's analysis. Mm-hmm. It's like... But not necessarily... Now, see, that's the interesting, though. It's, it's not necessarily as simple as narcotics, right? I mean, Marx speaks of religion in a very low light when he says it's the opiate of the masses. <clears throat> Art wouldn't necessarily... narcotics, but Nietzsche says medicine. Well, it would be a medicine. I, what I mean to distinguish is that uh, not all, all... I think that art as involving an intoxicating effect and affect, we could say that there are moods, particular themes of lived experience based on the drug state one finds oneself in. And art has this interesting way that it can create a kind of almost infinite variation, a continuous variation. Art, it would be perhaps discontinuous, but infinite in its own way. Art provides these different slices of mood and represents them and enacts them and incites them um, through obviously like rhythm, melody, and and refrains. They become a part of our existential territories. Or yeah, no, this is obviously this is calling back a little bit to our last episode uh, about music and kind of modes of living. And, mm-hmm, and yeah. it's struck me that this is kind of one of the themes in. I guess it's indifference to repetition, but it's honestly a very broad Deleuzian theme. The idea yeah. that a life is kind of an impersonal melody that like plays right. at different speeds right. and like keys throughout your life. It's like the same melody, but like in a slightly different register, a different key, a different, you know what I mean? So I think that this is repetitions, large and small kind of involuting, right? The like, modes of living we were talking about, because we got back to the whole infamous scene in the Republic where the, the artists are restricted. There is a restricted access for which artists are allowed. Right. It's interesting that it's not, we're going to limit what art, what type of art is possible because that's implied, but it's, it's, it's just that, no, the artists that are already doing sorts of work outside of that, they have to, they have to go. They're almost like a foreign body now. Um, because they represent and enact and create and therefore disseminate modes of, well, you said modes of living, but I'm also thinking um, appropriations of annexing of existential territories. Right. No, no, and, and, in, and in both sense, both rhythms and yes. melodic possibilities. Because this is the thing I was yeah. just thinking of is like policing. They're talking about cops walking a beat. Which is a little, yeah. A little bit well, that's, a, that's a funny. Thought, that's an interesting. Like, so in Greece, the city-states represented the different, like, the different modes, the different musical modes. Yes. It's the same notes, but you start and end at a different place and it gives it a different feel. Yeah. A different mood, a yeah. different mode. Even right? even so, but languages it, have moods in, in their city states. So no, and, and like I mean, but you see it all over the world. This yeah. like this music differentiation. Like it could be melodic as with the Greeks, but in other parts of the world, like Southeast Asia, you've got the different Regions correspond to different rhythmic, like yes. polyrhythmic yes. kind of dialects of, of like rhythmic energies yes. and, and cadences. And then in the um, West and the East, is broken by a kind of uh, tonality. Right? Yeah, right. It took till what Schoenberg types and abstracting that we 
start to appreciate the the blue notes or whatever you would call it, the in-between notes that our previous systems, if not allowed, made the mood, made the made the appropriate the milieu. And unlock this future music. I mean, because you get, I feel like Adorno basically makes this case, you know, sort of in his critique of Schoenberg, that's like, has this parallel with Nietzsche and Wagner. In other words, Schoenberg's the future music that Nietzsche was hoping Wagner would give yes. us. You know what I mean? Like yes. there's this really clear completion of it, right? Like And uh, we, wouldn't that wouldn't jazz be kind of the basic embodiment of the West finally acceding to a type of synchronization with rhythms and translating them into a, a system that had been it was almost I mean, that's almost like a Euclidean system in the West. There's there's a there's a Restrained, a restricted aspect to uh, that mode of living. You also see it in visual art. I mean, it takes what until impressionists and so on uh, that art can become directly and indirectly non-representational. Not because it's it's almost a very platonic way that we see a lot of art in the West being about. Um, Moving towards a realism uh, in 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 the Enlightenment era, but then that gets already broken. And um, in certain ways, one one interesting way is uh, there's a there's a painter in France painting it around the time of the Revolutionary. I believe before it, uh, he may be one of the casualties of it. I believe, but he represents by this Marxist historian's account that I whose name I forget. He he represents a kind of one in the West, the first instance in which writing enters the frame and actually plays a role that is the most important significational aspect of it because it's a writing. It's 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 a uh, it's this famous painter, and he's dead in the bathtub. He's been assassinated, and he has by his tub a letter. And the writing in the letter indicates... De- Death of Marat, right? Yeah. Yes, that's right, Death of Marat. And that is this kind of interesting moment where writing enters the frame, and it precedes almost immediately this turn to allowing for Impressionism. And I think of, like, Van Gogh as, like, a... You know, he's... And obviously Picasso and then abstract painting would be a total... Right. As I was to say, there's a, there's a couple um, yes. directions by which you can leave reality. Yeah. There's like a, there's, you know, a straight up kind of delve into the beneath, into the unconscious, the surrealism. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that too. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess the, to, to maybe to emphasize this point about how things from outside the frame enter it and things from within the frame, like the surreal landscapes that mm-hmm. painters envision, they, they're also. It, you know, made real by architects yeah. who transform the built environment around us. You know, like there is a utopian dimension yeah. to painting in this way that you use like a window into a possible future world that could only be yeah. understood retroactively. There's this logic of like why art is connected with these kind of tangled loops of time, especially in modernity, because we've broken free of the cyclical continuous difference. Yes. And now we're in an open intensive space of just flight and escape. Two, right? two like, things that's really interesting that in, in the preface to philosophy and non-philosophy, what Laura Well is 
at, what he's saying with non-philosophy, when, when we ask, what does non-philosophy do? Um, he's not just saying, hey, we can have a kind of generalized way of reading through philosophy's bullshit and rewrite it in a, in a way that cancels that bullshit out. But that this, even, but that this effort isn't just a, a logically rigorous or scientific aspect because he is proposing a science. It's also an art. There's an artistry that's involved in non-philosophy precisely by him saying this rhetorical question Look, the fundamental question that non-philosophy proposes is why, or the fundamental non-aesthetic, the aesthetic uh, aspect of it, the non-aesthetic aspect of it, is to say why hasn't philosophy been able to undergo the same transformations that has occurred in abstract art, that has occurred in 12-tone serialism, and that has occurred in non-Euclidean aspects of, of science that he calls it a Riemannian or Lobachevskian and in a certain sense, it's a. He'll also call. I don't know if he says non-Einsteinian, but it's there is it, that 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 name is is also there. It's just Einstein is a later. He is profiting from that turn from non-Euclidean, and also non-Aristotelian systems. I think Boole too can be thrown in here. Really? Um, a, yeah. I never see really Laurel talking about it, but uh, he may talk about Boole, but I haven't encountered. But it may, it, I think you could fit that in there. That no, 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 it's, and it's, yeah. Non-Aristotelian is non-Euclidean, but... Um, so philosophy never had its surrealist moment, or...? Yes, that, 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 that... Because what we're talking about with 12-tone serialism and with non-Euclidean uh, systems and with abstract art is that all three of these, both science and um, the musical and the pictorial arts. They, in the West, were locked into their own types of formalisms. They were the basis for how one did what there was to make with. And so you have a, you have a schema of operation that obviously was extremely fruitful and produced variation and produced creation um, and so, like, in music, you see the culmination of this in someone like J.S. Bach, where he's like, ah, oh, well, I've, I've, I've run through all the programs. My art, I'm done making music. He's, I've pretty much done all the variations that mathematically I have. That, that, that Exhausted the combinatorial. Of, of, the, of the, well, the fugue and of that neoclassical form that he's associated with giving birth to. He's kind of like, I... I have the formulas, they have been done. And that to me is the, is the height of a kind of, it's a hyper um, representationalism. That there are, there are channels of the possible that can even be mathematically programmed and we can carry them out and that will be music. Um, that type of formalization precedes. Bach was a computer. Bach, yes, but right before that is uh, something even more groundbreaking, which not only 12-tone serialism, but then with, like, you think of how Dudu and Guattari talk about John Cage and the play of the incorporation of silence and silences that also are somewhat distinct and aren't just a generic abstract silence, the way that John Cage uses silence as a, as a musical thing. That, those two represent 
the abstraction in art, abstraction in a good sense. Right. Because it, uh, it is also a, on, a, like a musical. Yeah. And painters like, had to object, do that. You know, pa like painters had to move beyond the platonic call in the Republic to make representation based on a reflection of reality. Sure, you're going to be an imitation, but you're going to be a damn good imitation in, in an approximation, right? This is not the Laura. What, I, don't even, I can't even say the word, but like the the Hino something, like his uni, yeah, the, uni, uni, the, the uni, honology. You're always the right. You're always thinking according to the one. Is yes. this not a, a, a modality of realism? He had that why he's, a, he's he straight. has a he has an interest. He has a, uh, a few paragraphs, I I believe, also in the same book, when he talks about it elsewhere, where he says why non-philosophy is not a henology or a negative theology, yeah. um, and that it's about... Henology, for him, I believe, would balk at the notion that the one cannot be described. Okay. They would describe yeah, it in a negative... Sure. Well, the negative theology would do the whole negative description, but he's saying that actually... Um, the one can be described as long as we um, agree upon certain diam certain parameters within which the one can be described without violating its essence or by without without doing something misleading in thought through language and therefore being uncritical about the language that we use. If we if we can bracket the illegitimate, the philosophical. Um, Right. understanding of I, I, the I mean, one's essence. So yeah. Here's, I guess here's my thought. Like that it seems like the difficulty and complexity of the machine Laurel has to assemble mm -hmm. in order to start this program running, I think demonstrates what a different and recursive yeah. case philosophy is compared to things like like the relatively rigid, well defined yeah. disciplinary modalities that were already, like you say, already well close to having completed exhausting their formal space and artists were getting bored and just inventing variations and I mean I think I don't know this question about boredom and philosophy right like we're never bored enough of philosophy to realize a certain of its limitations yeah there's something about there's an inherent interest that is 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 a torsion a coil that like pulls us back into it um yeah and, and I, I would say with the henology thing that henologists and negative theologists want to turn the one in this any plus ultra, the ne plus ultra, right? The, the, that which is, you know, greater than that, you know, that which not, nothing more is greater than it. There's this kind of logical, uh, no, no, that the one would right. be, yeah. It, that sounds like you, the thing you make about the etymology of the universe, which is literally just taking everything and turning it into one thing. Yes. Right? Like that's it's it's right? the it's the is it the master set? No, that's what's what's the, the, the what's the set, set of all set what's the set, set of all, all sets. power yeah. sets. So, I mean, and this is set of all subsets to to be not yeah. paradoxical. I mean, like Russell tries to rule that out, right? In his theory of types, Russell and Whitehead, right. they they kind of try to Right. You can have sets of subsets but not sets of proper, right? Like if there's a whole this is the point of the types that you're differentiating types of sets from each other. Right? Yes. And, and uh, I think that henology in one way and the negative theology in another way would would kind of uh, one through being, one through nothingness, if you will, would would make the one be this set and Larwell has his own ways of saying how that's not true because of foreclosure. Right, um, but the 
and because the one is on non ontological. I think you're usually saying like that there's a paradox that's resistant to thought, kind of. Here, yeah. And maybe paradox is the wrong. Some of these words are wrong. But. And then henology and, and negative theology would not understand Laura Wells saying, the one can be described, but it has to be described axiomatically, so that it is described in a certain way axiomatically through its definitions, quote so unquote. Laura Wells is a computer too. Yeah, there's a he. He might he would call it like the transcendental computer, right? But it wouldn't just be Laurel. And for him, Laurel is like it's not about me, you know. It's and again, it's not this. I know this, what you mean when you say Laurel, but it's not a combinatorial formalism, but an experimental set of practices. Right? It can, I, I think that it can be. I think that it. He wouldn't want to distinguish between the theory and the practice. He would want to see them as as unified. Um, and that's the, that's that's part of the pre preliminary work that non philosophy does is showing how that unified um, without unity, it's unified. It's not unitary of theory and practice. That Hegelian philosophical understandings of theory and praxis would be. Unitary, even Marx, perhaps, because of his indebtedness to Hegel. Perhaps, I mean, that's, but for Laruel, he's trying to show through the, it's really about humans. It's right. really about our own status as stranger, our own, we, I think, for him, the non-philosophical utopia of the computer is man in person. Right. And... And that's a part of non-philosophy. Non-philosophy is an expression, if you will, or not an expression. It's it's a kind of you're, pro, you're, it's you're a programmatic. It's, it's an expressionist program for philosophy. It's right. One of the things. You well, can... that would be interesting too. That's that's a great point because it gets back to the point I was trying to make about art or something non-aesthetic, as he said. There's a whole definition of him. He says it. Um, you know, we use the term aesthetics in the singular, and, and uh, in the French, it's non aesthétique and it doesn't have an S on it, it's QUE. You see that in a lot of uh, words for these, the eek words, the X that we have, the logistics and axiomatics and these other things. We, we put an S on it. and. In French, though, you can just add an S and make it plural and show the difference. And he, you know, he talks about there are aesthetics, the non-aesthetics and the plural. And this would be um, partly based on the material that one is working with. Um, and the, this is why Laruel, even though he's a computer, he has experimental texts. Right. Laruel, even though non-philosophy can be and, and needs to be exposited in a way that shows its programmability, programs, and what one would bring a creativity to a program, if you will. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure I feel like you're trying to draw out this, um, this line about realism, but uh, let's see if I can.